here with you guys this morning. I mean, it's uh, the halfway mark of summer, which is hard to imagine, but uh, I hope you had a chance to get away and, uh, or at least recharge your batteries on some level. Uh, I, I'm excited that Mark had a chance to get away. I think he's such a hardworking guy, and he's always, uh, he's always here. He's always hustling, and I just think that, uh, you know, he, he's deserving of a well-deserved break, and I just think that maybe we could encourage him, maybe we could send him a text this morning and just tell him how we feel about him. Sometimes it's hard face-to-face, and it's much easier if you uh, just send a text. So um, we're going to put up his number here in a second, and uh, I do not have his permission to give this number to you, but there it is. And, uh, and uh, maybe you're like, oh, I don't know what to text. Uh, what do you say? So I've come up with some suggestions for you, things that you can text and feel comfortable that he will appreciate. Uh, so maybe things like miss you. I hope you're enjoying your time off. He'd certainly enjoy that. Uh, maybe you just want to let him know, you know, we're truly blessed to have you as our pastor. Let him know how you truly feel. Uh, if you want to spice it up a bit, maybe you could send something like this. Wow, so many police cars at the church. What's going on? <laughs> now, if you send that one, don't, don't respond. Just let them, let them think about that for a bit. Uh, maybe you want to ask, seriously, there's only two fire extinguishers in this whole church? Or, hey, if you and Gary are both away, who's preaching? Although I guess the answer is Brian, so never mind. Skip that one. Or I like this one with guest speakers like this. You should stay on vacation as long as you like. And so if you have a minute, send them a text. Let them know uh, that you're thinking about them. Um, some of you might be surprised to know that uh, I actually went to Bible college, and after hearing me preach, some of you won't be surprised to know that I didn't graduate. It's, uh, it's okay, because my wife tells me that every sermon I preach is a little bit better than the next one, and it uh, really makes me feel good. But uh, to make a long story short, Bible college didn't go well. I think it's safe to say that they didn't really like me, and I didn't really like them. And all this culminated with a meeting in the dean's office. And if you're in high school, the dean's office is the principal's office. And I remember what Dean Fred said to me. I also remember how much Dean Fred hated being called Dean Fred, and that might have been part of the problem. But Dean Fred looked at me and he said, maybe Bible college isn't the right place for you. And I have to admit, it hurt to hear those words, mostly because he was right. It turned out there wasn't much call for a class clown in Bible college, but if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, I don't care. I'm not coming back anyway. I wouldn't come back if you paid me. Um, you know, I, I've, I've already met the girl I'm going to marry, so I no, have, no longer have a youth for Bible college, which, by the way, is why most people go to Bible college. But it hurt, and I felt rejected. And it wasn't just that the school was rejecting me. It kind of felt like God was rejecting me. And you see, I believe that God had asked me to go to Bible college, Um, and I'd only been a Christian for a few months, and as an act of obedience, I went. And so what does it mean that I was dropping out after a year? What does it mean? And does this mean God's angry at me, or is he disappointed at me? And I felt condemned, and condemned isn't a word we use very much. It's actually a legal term. It means that after having been found guilty, there's a realization of your responsibility and liability, which requires you to receive a consequence of some sort. But that's the legal definition. We have a more common definition that's, that's used, and you're probably more familiar with this. It's a demonstration of complete shame and disappointment in you by someone else, typically in a public fashion. I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you've messed up and someone's called you on it. In church, we have other expressions. We say things like not measuring up or missing the mark, but we know what we mean. And as a result of condemnation, we feel guilt and we feel shame. In fact, the most, 
for the most part, those three words kind of have the same meaning. They have the same connotation about them. I think we need to make sure we're clear on the definitions. And so guilt is simply this. Guilt is an acknowledgement that you've done something wrong. There's a burden of responsibility that, that comes when you know you've done something wrong and when you've sinned against God or maybe broken any other type of law. Shame is different. Shame focuses on remorse and embarrassment, where we feel like we've let others down, and that includes God, and we expect to receive some sort of scorn or ridicule. Dr. Brene Brown is a psychologist, and she does her research on how guilt and shame affect the way kids develop into adults. And she says it this way, guilt feelings are based on what we do or what we've done, whereas shame feelings are based on who we are how we look, and how we relate to others. It's much more personal. It's that feeling that you can't shake that maybe God's mad at you or at the very least disappointed in me. It's being afraid to answer that simple question of how can God love me and accept me when I've done all of these things? And maybe I'm the only one who struggles with that because if it is, I can go finish this in the car and you guys can go for ice cream. But I don't think it is just me. I think it's a common thing that Christians struggle with. So let me put it to you simply this way. The solution to guilt, shame, and condemnation is simply grace. So what I want to know is, what would Jesus say to me if I was, he was standing here face-to-face with me and I shared what I just shared with you? What would he say to me? And the great thing is that we can read in the Bible exactly how he would respond to someone who's asking these sort of questions. And that's uh, one of the best parts about reading the Bible is how applicable it is to your life. And And we're about to meet, in the book of John, someone with what I would call an unfortunate nickname. And there's a number of people in the Bible who have unfortunate nicknames. I mean, I think of Doubting Thomas, the disciple of Jesus's who didn't believe the other disciples when they told him they'd seen Jesus, when they'd seen him walking around resurrected. And he's been given this nickname, Doubting Thomas, by the church because he said he didn't believe them and he wouldn't believe them until he saw Jesus for his own eyes. But I kind of feel for Thomas, because I think I would have been the same way. My friends came up to me and said, hey, we've seen Jesus resurrected. We just had breakfast with him. I'd probably say, yeah, I saw him down by the Walmart. He was riding a unicorn. I mean, I'm not going to believe it either if I don't see it with my own eyes. I mean, come on, it's not hard to understand how someone can't believe the unbelievable. Or the woman at the well. She's like, excuse me, I have a name. I think it was Linda. Or how about Elijah? Elijah's my favorite. He had a nickname too. Take a look at this. 2 Kings 2.23 says this. Elijah left Jericho and went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, a group of boys from the town began mocking and making fun of him. Go away, baldy, they chanted. Go away, baldy. I like how it says they chanted, like it's some sort of pep rally or something. But uh, something tells me that he didn't like that nickname. Look at the next verse. Elijah turned around and looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. That's right. I'm not making this up. And I have to tell you, I just love the message it sends. I feel like that should be the motto of our church. I think we should put it out front on the sign so when people drive by. And you know what? I think Elijah's name from that day forward was Mr. Elijah Sir. I'm I'm pretty sure some of you think I I really did make that up, Um, but uh, in reality, I didn't. The Old Testament is a pretty interesting read if you want to make your way through it, and a lot of it's hard to understand, and a lot of it's kind of a little strange, Uh, but if you ever have any questions, day or night, 
I just gave you Mark's phone number. You give him a call, he'll walk you through it. But I have to admit, nicknames didn't always backfire. I mean, you never hear the three wise men complaining. But today we're going to take a look at the story of a woman who we simply call the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you don't know what adultery is, um, ask your parents. And uh, if they don't know, ask your grandparents. But I think it's safe to remember and important to remember that adultery was not a civil issue as it is today. It was a criminal one. In many ancient writings, we see that someone who was an adulterer was referred to as a vile sinner and was actually labeled as worthy of condemnation, worthy of shame. And I think the best example of that kind of scorn and shame uh, that's associated with this word is it can actually be found in Puritan society back in the 1600s in Massachusetts. They developed a very unique way of dealing with adultery, and it focused solely on guilt and shame. So in this photo we're about to see here, this is actually a, a picture taken from the actual law from the 1600s that laid out what would happen if you were caught as an adulterer. And it says three things. The first thing it says is that you would be hung by the neck for an hour. The second thing says you would be whipped to a maximum of 40 lashes. If you passed out, they would stop, but the maximum would be 40. And for the rest of your life, you would have to wear a letter A on your clothes, forever labeling you as an adulterer. And that's probably the part you've heard of. It was made famous in a book called The The Scarlet Letter that was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne back in the 1800s, but it was set back in the 1600s. And it goes into great detail about this letter A. It was to be worn on your clothes. It was for both men and women, and it had to be a capital A, at least two inches in height and proportional in size and it had to be a color different than whatever you were wearing. It didn't have to be red or scarlet, but it often was. And it had to be sewn onto every piece of clothing that you owned. And if you're ever caught without it, there would be further ridicule and punishment. Now, I've left this slide up for a second, too, just to show you at the very bottom here, it says something. It says, tatis quotis, which, again, you probably think I made that up, but that's Latin, and that means, as often as deemed necessary. And what that means was that if anybody ever felt you had forgotten your past, had forgotten what you'd done, you were liable to end up with 15 more lashes. And so if you're ever caught without that letter, or you're ever caught having an attitude, a cavalier attitude, you could just be taken out in the town square and whipped again. But for some of you who have been looking at this for a few minutes here, you're kind of uh, saying, wait a minute, I think you may have messed this up. Let me get this straight. First, you're hung for an hour then you're whipped, and then you have to wear the A? Because I'm pretty sure if you've been hung for an hour, you really don't care what comes next. Um, And that's what I thought when I read this. I wasn't sure what happened. But uh, if we read it carefully, it says this. It says, They shall be set upon the gallows by the space of an hour, with a rope around their neck and the other end cast over the gallows. You see what it's saying? You would have a noose put around your neck, and for a period of an hour, you would stand there on display in front of the town. The other end of the rope wasn't even tied to anything. It was just draped over the top of the gallows. It was a ceremonial hanging that would last an hour, and its purpose was to simply shame you, to condemn you. The entire town would come out, and they would watch for that entire hour, and they would just heap ridicule and shame and embarrassment on you. And for the rest of your life, you would wear that letter A for all to see, so that they all knew and were reminded of your lowest moment, that terrible time when you fell short, when you missed the mark. It was like a badge of dishonor. 
And what it really says is that my past is so shameful that no one, especially myself, should ever forget it. And that shame would literally follow them for the rest of their lives. But for 1,600 years before that, it was even worse. In the time of Jesus, it was even worse. And we can pick it up in John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So these so-called religious leaders, these Pharisees, to them this woman was a pawn, and they were willing to see her forfeit her life to trap Jesus so they could make a point. They wanted to use her and her sin to discredit Jesus. And this was a complete setup. If Jesus lets the woman go, then he's guilty of disrespecting the law of Moses. And if he stones her, his message of love and compassion is lost. He simply becomes like those other Pharisees, preaching anger and condemnation, building jail cells for the people one brick at a time with condemnation, guilt, and shame. You see, the crowds followed Jesus not because he was just like the other religious leaders of the day. He followed, they followed him because of his life-giving message of a restored relationship with their heavenly father. Over the past month or so, Mark's been preaching about the steps that our faith takes. And these people are solidly in step one. They're following. They're literally following Jesus. Whenever they hear he's speaking, they go. Wherever he leaves, he, they follow. They're curious. They're wondering what's different about this man. And so his words give life. They give freedom from condemnation. So, of course, a crowd follows. But she was guilty of a crime that carried a death sentence. There's no wiggle room, no due process, no phone call, no lawyer, no technicality she can get off on, no opportunity for an explanation. She was guilty, and the Pharisees knew it, and the crowd that had formed knew it, and Jesus knew it. And I'm pretty sure that she knew it too. We can only imagine that she was a woman who had lost all hope. In the eyes of the Pharisees, she was worthy of death. But in the eyes of Jesus, she was worthy of grace. Now, this word grace, the enormity of this word is lost on us today. We define it by saying things like unwarranted favor or love in action. But if, one of, but if those words don't really ring true until you've been on the receiving end of it. Tullian Tavision defines grace as unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. But I like the way it's defined by Paul Zale. He says, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you when that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. The cliche definition of grace, he says, is unconditional love, and it's true, but it doesn't go far enough. He says, grace is love that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures, what you're worth. It has nothing to do with your intrinsic qualities or your so-called gifts. It reflects on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved. And it negates all qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Quite simply, grace is one-way love. And maybe the problem with all of these definitions is they suffer from the same problem. There's too many words. Let's try it like this. If the definition on paper is like a sip of water, then grace in real life is like this. The solution to your guilt, your shame, and your condemnation 
is God's grace. And this undeserving, lost, broken, guilty, condemned, and shame-filled woman was about to see what grace really meant. And our story continues in verse 6. It says this, They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I bet you would like to know what he wrote. So would I. We don't know. We have no idea. But, he, but in, in verse 7, it picks up, they kept demanding an answer. So as soon as he stood up again, he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. Now I am almost, and I do say almost, feeling sorry for the Pharisees at this point. I mean, they thought they had him. This was not a a poorly thought out plan. This was a good plan. For them, it seemed win-win. Jesus had to pick one way or the other, but instead, Jesus refused to pass judgment on this woman, and instead, he allows the Pharisees to pass judgment on themselves. Now, just imagine yourself in that crowd for a minute. Remember, the crowd is not with the Pharisees. The crowd are the people who have been assembling there all day, listening as Jesus was teaching. And just imagine yourself there, if you can, seeing this woman and Jesus sharing a private moment together in and amongst this huge crowd. And then for the first time, Jesus speaks directly to her. In verse 10, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. No, Lord. She responds to Jesus' question so simply, just simply with no. But Jesus' response, neither do I. See, there was only one person there who could have thrown the first stone. There was only one person there who could honestly have answered that they had no sins in their life, no sin in their life, and that was Jesus. But Jesus said two things. He said he didn't condemn her, and she was to stop sinning, and he said it in that order, and I think that's so important. It's like he was saying this to her. I, can, I don't condemn you. I came to restore you. I don't come to heap guilt, shame, and condemnation on you. I came to forgive, to redeem, to restore. Now, in the light of that, go. Go live a life pleasing to God. Go and live a life that shows your heavenly Father just a fraction of the love I've shown you here today. And yet, for so many of us, we hear it backwards. We hear it like this, stop sinning. Come on, we both know this wasn't the first time, and we both know this wasn't even the worst thing that you've done. You deserve death, but if you stop sinning, live better, then I don't condemn you. Well, that's not what he said. He said, neither do I. But how can Jesus say this? How can he say that she's not guilty? Because she was. And the answer comes in, in, in three points, I think. The first is this, John 1:17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The law of Moses said she should be stoned, but Jesus said that he doesn't condemn her. But the thing is, whenever Jesus talked about sin, it was always for a reason. It was always with a look towards restoration, not condemnation. And he simply says, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't overlook her sin. Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. Jesus doesn't condone her sin. But Jesus doesn't condemn her for her sin, although he condemns sin itself. Jesus took her guilt and shame and condemnation, and he replaced it with grace. And it's true and life-changing as it was for her in that moment. It's as true and life-changing for us today. You see, in our society, we tend to believe that if you do the crime, you need to do the time. But Paul writes in Romans 6.14, he said, Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And a few chapters later, you've probably heard this one, Romans 8.1, 
Paul says there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because the solution to your guilt, to your shame, to your condemnation is always God's grace. Now, to be honest, it's pretty easy to feel bad for this woman, to sympathize with her, to feel uh, for her, to feel pity for her. I mean, she sinned, yes, and she was guilty, but picturing her there on the ground, hopeless, crying, knowing she was moments away from a terrible, painful, humiliating death, I find that Jesus' response to her maybe isn't as shocking as I should find it. But I want to look at another recipient of God's grace, someone who doesn't garner a lot of pity from us as we read about him. We simply call, he's simply called the other criminal. And you may not instantly be able to picture who that is, but, and we only get to spend a very few minutes with this man. But on the day that Jesus was crucified up on that hill called Calvary, he was not alone. There were two criminals who were there being punished with him, one on his left and one on his right. And this was a public spectacle. Crucifixion was not a private matter. It was a public matter. It could last for hours or even days. And people would show up and had showed up well in advance and had followed the victims up the hill to watch. They were publicly heaping guilt, shame, and condemnation on all three of these men. And so in Luke 23, starting in verse 35, it says, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, yeah, right. There's no way, right? I mean, guilt, shame, condemnation. I mean, that's basically a list of what we've just read. Jesus is on the cross and the leaders scoffed. The crowd watched, silently judging. The soldiers mocked him and even one of the criminals taunted him. And it was then that when the first criminal started scoffing and, and, and mocking Jesus, it was the second criminal who chimed in, but instead of laughing or egging him on, the second man rebuked him. Rebuked is like a Bible-y word for corrected. And he said, don't you fear God since you're about to meet him? The man is nailed to the cross hours from his death, and he's mocking Jesus. But then the second criminal says something that's very interesting. He says, we deserve to be here. We have done terrible things, and this is what we deserve. You see, crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst and the baddest of the bad. It was for those criminals who were considered to be worthy of death, but also worthy of condemnation, worthy of a public spectacle where they would be shamed. And there's really three things that could get you crucified by the Romans. The first was for desertion, for, for running away from the army. And it was actually the only, the only reason that a Roman citizen could ever be crucified. The second reason was sedition. And that means to incite a rebellion. And that's what Jesus was charged with under Roman law. He couldn't be crucified by the Romans for blasphemy. That was a religious crime. He was up there for sedition. And the final reason you might be crucified was for being what they called a vile criminal. And that was the reason these other two men had faced crucifixion. Now, we don't use the term vile criminal in our justice system. We would say something like a habitual criminal, someone who had devoted themselves to a life of crime. And then this man says something truly amazing. He says, but this man, 
referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that kind of seems like a strange thing to see, to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But remember what the sign above his head said. It said he was the king of the Jews. This man was acknowledging that Jesus said who he said he was and that he was the son of God. And just like that, he's forgiven, no longer condemned. Because it says in the next verse, and Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I can only imagine that other criminal saying, seriously, you're kidding, right? That's all he had to do. And so this man, this vile criminal, who wholeheartedly deserved the guilt and shame and condemnation that he was given up on that cross, was forgiven, was freed from condemnation because of grace. He did nothing to deserve it. He had no opportunity to do better. It wasn't possible for him to receive the same instructions as the adulterous woman had. He had no opportunity to stop sinning and do better. But grace lifted that weight off his shoulders all the same. It's like the prodigal son. Do you remember him? The young man who disrespects his father in the most insulting way. He says to his dad, given the choice between your, being your son and being rich, I'd rather be rich. And so the dad decides to let his kid decide how he wants to live his own life, and he gives him his inheritance. And off the kid goes to make his way in the world with his daddy's money. And not surprisingly, he and his friends burn through that money pretty quickly, living it up. And surprise, surprise, when the money's gone, so are those friends. And so basically, he's living on the street, barely finding enough to eat. And then he gets this idea, I'll go home. My dad's worst employee is doing better than me. Maybe I can get hired on to do the jobs that nobody else wants. You know, sweep the floors, take out the trash, fill in on Sundays as a guest speaker. So he heads back. Not to be restored as a son, but to stay quiet, sit in the back, and and not bring any attention to himself. The son knows he's screwed up. No doubt about it. He feels guilt and shame and condemnation for days as he walks home. But what he doesn't know, what he can't even imagine, is that every day his dad stares down their long driveway, hoping and praying for the day he might see his boy again. But day after day goes by and nothing, until one day when the dad's looking down that driveway, he sees someone approaching. He can't tell who it is, but he dares to hope, and he just keeps watching. And as that distant traveler draws closer, the father starts to take a few steps, squinting into that bright sun. Is it? Could it really be him? And he starts taking a few more steps and a few more steps. And without even realizing it, he starts running, sprinting down that driveway as fast as he can. It's him. It's my son. He's come home. And as they collide into a huge hug, the son tries to spit out his apology. But the dad's not even listening. Instead, he says this, for that son of mine who is dead, now he's returned to life. Now I ask you, is it even possible to hear that story and say to yourself, man, that father sure condemned his son. Man, he sure made him pay for his mistakes. Any shame and condemnation that son felt that moment was whatever he brought with him up that driveway. Because the solution to your guilt, your shame, and your condemnation is always God's grace. For so many of us, though, we live with guilt and shame and condemnation for things that we've done in the past. We feel like Jesus looks down at us with stones in his hand, shaking his head. Like he's saying, really, this is how you choose to live? I went to the cross, paid the price for your sin, and you keep sinning. We tend to believe that God is disappointed with us, fed up with us, tired of our shortcomings, and running out of patience if he already hasn't. But listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Romans 5.11, now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Romans 3.24, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of your Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.7, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for those who are united in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39, no power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that sound like a God who is running out of patience with you? Does that sound like a God who looks at you with disappointment in his eyes? Is it as if he strips off that letter A and he simply says to you, that's not who you are anymore? Now you might say, yeah, but my, my past is pretty bad. And the way I live now is not how God wants me to be living either. And that may be true, but the blood of Christ covers all. David wrote this in the Psalms. When looking back at his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, knowing what he'd done, knowing that he deserved condemnation, he wrote this in Psalm 103. He said, he has removed our sin as far, as, as far from us as east is from west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom, we die. The wind blows and we're gone as though we'd never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever for those who fear him. So who condemns you? I can't answer that question for you. I don't know the circumstances of your life, but I can tell you this. The only one with the right, the only one with the authority to condemn you, the only one worthy of casting the first stone doesn't. And if you're here this morning as someone who's made a commitment to Jesus and you're struggling with sin in your life, can I encourage you to confess it to God, allow him to forgive you because he's already paid the price, and know that your forgiven sin is as far from you as east is from west? And if you're here this morning still living with guilt and shame and condemnation from your past, can I tell you that you need to let it go? You carry it with you everywhere you go, like a badge of dishonor, but God says it's as far from you as east is from west. So you have to let it go. I'm not going to sing it but you need to know that Jesus has paid the price for you and he doesn't condemn you. And if God won't condemn you, you need to stop condemning yourself. Will you take God at his word when he tells you this? And I don't know why this is so hard to live out. This is the thing I struggle with most in my life. Why is it, why is it so easy to forget these simple truths? And maybe, just maybe, the Puritans were onto something. Maybe we need a way to remind us every day, not of our lowest moment with an A, but of God's greatest moment, the day that he sent his son to pay the price for us so that he could offer us grace. Can I pray? Lord, we just thank you. We, we know in our heads how much you love us, and yet sometimes we have such a hard time understanding, understanding what grace has done. It's more than forgiveness of sin. It's a, it's a reconnection with you, our loving Father. It's a restored relationship. It's a redeemed people. 
God, can you just carry, help us carry that with us this week? Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts this week, reminding us what grace has done, reminding us that, that our obedience to you comes from our love for you, not from a fear of punishment, that condemnation is not in your vocabulary. We just love you. We just praise you. We just give you the glory. What an amazing thing to have a God, the creator of the entire universe, care so deeply about us and want nothing more than a right relationship with us. Pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.